Hello and welcome to the Rogers Brief for June 23rd, 2023. I'm Adam Rogers. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. This week we're going to be covering some cases out of Nova Scotia, a variety of cases, one involving uh, the legislature and some MLAs, another with an estate claim, one with a uh, criminal court case involving the sexual assault allegations but on an evidentiary uh, perspective is what I'll be talking about. And then finally, a building on First Nations land, which has been uh, become the subject of a dispute. Uh, a couple of national cases, too, I'm going to talk about uh, following up on a story I talked about last week of the judge shortage in Canada, Nova Scotia, but it's across the country where this has become an issue. And a lawyer out of Ontario has tried to take some legal action to address that shortage. And in addition, uh, the other thing I'll talk about is the Federal government released their action plan on the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and this was released on uh, Indigenous Day, uh, Indigenous Peoples Day this week. So the uh, first thing I want to talk about, though, before I get into those stories, is uh, we're going to be holding a special uh, book launch and discussion event on Tuesday uh, evening, 9.15 p.m. It'll be live on YouTube. And Jordan Bonaparte from the Nighttime Podcast, people that uh, watch these videos and know that I go on the Nighttime Podcast uh, many uh, Sunday evenings and talk to uh, talk with Jordan Bonaparte and Paul Palango about the mass casualty uh, events, the fallout, the different issues that are uh, surrounding that. Well, uh, Jordan is going to be the sort of host slash moderator of this uh, discussion, and I'll be reading a little bit. I'll read a few minutes from the book and uh, talk about what's in there, some of the thinking behind it, and uh, why I wrote it and why I think it's an important book at this time in our history. So anyway, uh, look forward to uh, that discussion with Jordan and presentation to you. And I would say uh, I've got a, a link for the book. You'll, it's easy to find the links to the book, but you wouldn't have to have read the book the, the plan is that you won't have had to have read the book in order to enjoy the discussion. And the discussion will be archived as well. You can join live and make comments and ask questions in the YouTube chat. And you can also uh, view the archived version at a later time or the podcast version. I'll be uh, uploading it as a Spotify and Apple podcast as well. So people will be able to get it there. It'll be about uh, an hour long, uh, give or take. And so uh, hopefully that's something that people will enjoy. Okay, so that's that. Uh, look forward to seeing everybody Tuesday evening. In addition, uh, Sunday evening, I'll be on with Jordan and Paul for the uh, nighttime podcast. All right, so first story. This is following up on a story last week, which was about the judge shortage. And we I talked about Nova Scotia and the provincial court. There's a few judges short. Well, across the country in superior courts, so Supreme Courts and Courts of Appeal, there are 79 vacancies. Most prominently in British Columbia, there's 13 vacancies. Ontario has 24 larger provinces, but still that's significant. Nova Scotia has three vacancies, one in the Court of Appeal and one in the uh, Supreme Court, one in the Supreme Court Family Division. So that's uh, not insignificant and it's delayed some cases and led to some offenders or potential, well, led to some accused having their cases stayed by the Crown as a result of 
unreasonable delay. Well, this lawyer, this law firm out of Ontario, out of Ottawa, Hamed Law, is taking action or trying to take action. Nicholas Pope is the lawyer whose name is on it, but the applicant is uh, Yavar Hamed, who advertises himself as a human rights human rights lawyer, and that he's representing clients and their cases are being delayed and uh, there's not enough judges so things aren't being heard and what he is seeking what they are seeking in addition to the publicity coming from getting this case in the news which is where I saw it so uh, good for Hamad Law for uh, getting some publicity out of it but what they're seeking in official terms is a writ of mandamus what is that well you look to Black's Law Dictionary Mandamus is Latin for we command a writ issued by a superior court to compel a lower court or a government officer to perform mandatory or purely ministerial duties correctly. Okay, so writ of mandamus, so that would be a, a demand, an order that the government appoint judges in these ways uh, now or in the alternative that there be a set time frame in which, within which, uh, judges should be named or must be named. Don't really see that uh, case, that uh, application being successful. There's a separation of the courts and the government, and I don't think the courts will accept, in a sense, that the government is hamstrung, tied to certain uh, time frames without other considerations. Uh, so. But we'll see. We'll see where it comes along. Uh, certainly the publicity from this application, I suspect, will uh, spur some governments on to, um, well, the federal government in particular, who names these superior court justices, to uh, get moving. Surely it's a, it's a sign of competence that you're able to make appointments like uh, judicial appointments in a timely manner and keep the uh, access to justice and the justice system generally uh, going smoothly. Okay, that's one federal issue. Second one, federal government released on the uh, first day of summer the uh, UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Action Plan. Now this was it's 74 pages long. I read through uh, most of it. It's uh, uh, what you would expect in a sense. Uh, lots of uh, aspirational language about uh, the relationship between First Nations and non, and how that should work. By the way, uh, I talked about this a few months ago when I was talking about the electoral boundaries disputes here in Nova Scotia, and Jaime Batiste, the member of Parliament for Sydney, Victoria, raised the uh, legislation the federal government, there, the Liberal government, had made regarding the uh, UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, that they adopted the United Nations Declaration and um, sort of tied themselves to uh, an action plan. Well, in the electoral boundaries dispute, uh, Jaime and Batiste tried to raise this, the UN Declaration, as sort of a defense in a sense of, well, you can't move First Nations around without consultation. And Justice Bourgeois, who I'm going to get to later because she, she was involved in uh, one of the decisions I'm going to reference wrote in response that the government hadn't even implemented or hadn't even uh, 
adopted an action plan as contemplated by the legislation. So how can you reference that if there isn't even one in existence? Well, there is now, and notably, it does not contain anything about electoral boundaries or uh, electoral representation in that way. So that's part. that part's interesting. The other one, uh, David Wright, a former classmate, I think actually sorry, David was a year behind me in, uh, in law school. He's now uh, teaching at the University of Calgary, teaching law there wrote about the modern treaty section. Interesting little article he writes as AB Law blog uh, out, of, uh, out of the University of Calgary, talking about how now the government has what he calls an ungenerous interpretation of these modern treaties and treats them more like a commercial contract than a relationship document, a relationship you know, uh, framework document as is what treaties are typically interpreted to be. And this new policy in David uh, David Wright's Professor Wright's uh, interpretation is uh, seeking to change that into more of a relational uh, treaty-like uh, situation. So, and he references an interesting uh, sort of analogy that on the government side they see treaties as a divorce. In other words, okay. Uh, we haven't been able to work together, so we'll write this agreement. You do your thing, we'll do our thing. Whereas First Nations see these treaties as a marriage. Like, all right, we have decided to or need to live together, work together. So this is how we're going to do it. Here are the terms under which we're going to uh, engage in this relationship. So uh, seems like a a better way to look at things as in a marriage, uh, but uh, certainly an interesting, I guess, uh, analogy of the two pers two perspectives that are held. All right, so those are uh, some national issues that I thought uh, that caught my eye in the last few days and I thought I'd bring to your attention. So Nova Scotia specific cases. The one that was sort of, it's not a case yet. It's uh, apparently a claim has been filed by Elizabeth Smith McCross and the independent MLA for uh, Colchester North. Uh, some controversy in the spring session when she was raising non-disclosure agreements, and this was an, an issue that came up, and there was an allegation by Miss uh, Smith-McCrossin that the government had made a former staff member of hers sign a non-disclosure agreement. Government denied it, and then uh, MLA Smith-McCrossin continued, persisted, and the government made a motion, uh, made, uh, introduced a motion in the legislature to expel her, expel uh, Elizabeth Smith McCrossin from the legislature. So she, Elizabeth Smith McCrossin, is now applying to the Supreme Court to declare that motion null and void. It was never voted on, but it's still there. It could be voted upon at any time. Now, the host is not sitting, so when the host sitting resumes, that motion could be called for a vote at any time. So it's sort of uh, hanging over uh, Elizabeth Smith McCrossin in a sense, and she doesn't want that. So I haven't seen the uh, actual court application that she has made. I suspect what she is going to be saying is that there's nothing in the House of Assembly Act or in the rules and forms of procedure that allows such a motion over basically a disagreement, even if it's a factual disagreement, and even if it's a disagreement where an independent member persists in, in making it. So there 
she's correct if that's the case, because there is nothing in the House of Assembly Act. I mean, you can, there's things to disqualify a member, but they have no application that, you know, in, if you just disagree with the government in some sense. Same with the rules and forms of procedure. They, there's conduct rules, but that is something that the speaker rules on. The speaker can remove somebody for uh, up to five days. So, procedurally, it would seem the most appropriate for this situation to be resolved by the Speaker of the House. Again, the, if Elizabeth Butt on the other side, <clears throat> so, in a sense, she has a good case because uh, there doesn't seem to be authority to uh, just make a motion and remove a member without the approval of the Speaker or without the, really, initiation of, of the situation from the Speaker. Second is, but on the other side, if a motion is improper, there are rules within the host rules that says the speaker rules on that. So the government uh, might be able to go into court and say, well, this is not a motion or this is not an application that a court should hear. This is something that the legislature itself should decide, which is, I think, where this will end up, uh, perhaps back in the fall. Anyway, we'll see uh, if these documents become available and can look through the claim from Miss uh, Miss Smith McCrossin. And uh, interest, it'll be interesting to see the government's defense as well when that comes out. All right, next case: McCallum versus Langell Estate, and this is a Nova Scotia Court of Appeal decision from Justice Bourgeois. These were self-represented individuals from the estate and uh, Mr. Claude McCallum. Now, what happened here, uh, looking, uh, the application itself was looking to extend time to file an appeal book. Appeal book, by the way, a very uh, thick book of which contains all of the trial record, any uh, uh, exhibits that were brought in at trial. So it's a lot of work to put together an appeal book. Mr. McCallum was two days late filing it. So he applied to extend the deadline and allow that to go through. Well, uh, the... Justice Bourgeois had to decide if that was appropriate, and in the course of deciding whether it was appropriate, you have to decide whether there's any realistic case uh, to be made on behalf of uh, Mr. McCallum against the Langell estate. Well, who's the Langell estate? That's Cora Langell. Signed a will in 2014 with three beneficiaries, including her daughter, Shirley McCallum. Now, Shirley McCallum and her mother were estranged, and Shirley, the daughter, was terminally ill didn't think she was going to survive her mother, and in fact did not. Prior to her death, Shirley McCallum wrote to her mother saying, you know, I know I'm a beneficiary and, uh, you know, we've had our hard times. What I would like you to do is assign my interest to my husband and let him look after that and he'll handle it appropriately or something to that effect, right? So trying to get her to pass it on to her husband. Uh, mother did not do that, and so the estate went to the two other surviving beneficiaries. And so, uh, Claude Langell uh, took action to say, sorry, Claude McCallum took action to say that was inappropriate. Well, this is what happens when you're self-represented. I mean, this was a very clear-cut case in a sense where, because Claude says, uh, you know, the phrase, those there then living, was the estate's quote-unquote only defense. 
And the court said, yes, that is their only defense. And it's a, it's, that's all they need. You only need one defense if it's a good one. And if it's, uh, you know, clearly makes your claim. Court says that it was clear and unmistakable, her intention that is, in her will. And that even if the legal outcome conflicts with what Mr. McCallum believes is right, then that's too bad. Too bad for him. Uh, so a lot of uh, wasted time and uh, expense going uh, through this process should have been clear up right away to Mr. McCallum if he had received legal advice that he had no chance. It was just a request from a beneficiary to... So a request, the, the overall principle. If you're a beneficiary and request, you make a request to the person writing the will, hey, you know, why don't you do this with my share if I don't make it? It's meaningless. It's still up to the person writing the will to write what they want to do, and that's that's what's going to hold. All right. Next case I want to talk about is uh, the is a criminal case involving a Mr. Roter out of Halifax, and this was a decision from Jamie Campbell, and he, Mr. Roter was found not guilty of uh, sexual assault of uh, rape. The issues were. There was two. Oh, there was two decisions released this week. One was the decision on the main claim itself, on the case, and where Mr. Roder was found not guilty. But the, an earlier one was an evidentiary issue. Two of them. One was could uh, text messages between the two individuals, Mr. Roder and the alleged victim, could they be used in trial? And secondly. Was it legitimate for Mr. Roder, uh, Mr. Roder's lawyer, to ask the complainant about a prior sexual encounter that they had had? Well, because uh, normally you are, you know, there's lots of rules about what you can ask about prior sexual encounters, and the reason is you don't want to, the courts don't want to have, you know, you bring up somebody's sexual past in a way that says, well. Since they did this and this and this and consented at that time, they probably consented this time. Uh, that's an inappropriate use of prior sexual activity, and that's not to be allowed as evidence. Uh, in this case, it was different, and he was allowed to ask about the prior incident because it was between the two of them, and it was you know some weeks prior. And the police had asked the complainant about that other night, and she said, no, we just watched a movie. Roder said, no, 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 we had sex and, and described it. And so it wasn't to try to show any propensity that she had to sexual activity or try to suggest that, well, she consented then, so she probably consented now. It was to attack her credibility. She lied this time, so she might be lying now. So that's a different way of using and uh, you know prior sexual activity and it's a legitimate use of it the other was the text messages between the two and there was some so text messages are often used in court that's not unusual there were some sexually explicit text messages and the crown and the alleged uh, victim took the position that well these explicit messages are uh, well I think they initially took the position these explicit, uh, sexually explicit text messages are records or they are um, uh, considered sexual activity in themselves. And so special rules would need to be applied. Eventually, they all agreed that they could be used 
and the judge agreed with that too but he had to go through the steps to make sure that those were appropriate so not always the case that you'd be able to use sexually explicit text messages uh, particularly if the messages were not between the two individuals uh, thought to be involved in the current sexual activity all right so uh, that is uh, that was R versus Rotor. Uh, the couple of the decision went through this in some detail. A couple had met through Tinder, and so one of the other things that Justice Campbell made a note to himself was that uh, the manner of communicating and the language used to communicate that a, a justice who is at least a generation removed from the technology and the, the sort of that sort of dating scene uh, technique should be cognizant that the language is going to be different and that the justice should be I guess flexible in a sense of trying to understand what that language what those language parameters in a certain app uh, may involve that would be different than uh, you might see or you might expect in face-to-face uh, -face contact or uh, communication by older individuals so uh, that was an interesting element of the case too actually maybe the more interesting element all right last case i want to talk about is this uh, case out of sebekanakadi first nation and it involves the band versus mi'kmaq family and children's services this is a court of appeal decision as well written by justice fichot uh, the panel was justice fichot chief justice wood and chief and justice uh, derrick so in Oh, well, a little over 10 years ago, almost 15 years ago now, Mi'kmaq Family Services, Family and Children's Services, built a building on the Sebek and Agate First Nation, and they've occupied it ever since, or they'd occupied it until November of 2021. There was no lease signed, drafted, or uh, no rent paid during that whole time, during the 10 years or so that they were in the building. But they paid for it themselves. Mi'kmaq Family and Children's Services paid for the building. So in November of 2021, Sebek and First Nation tells Mi'kmaq Family and Children's Services to vacate the building, which they did. They did that within, I think, a month or two months. But now Mi'kmaq uh, Family and Children's Services is claiming for unjust enrichment. In other words, we built this building, thought we'd stay in this building in perpetuity, yet now... You're kicking us out and not compensating us for the expenses. So now Sebek and Agate has this nice new free building, and that is an unjust enrichment. So a good claim, it would seem, and it seems as well that the parties are trying to negotiate a resolution. I, I get that sense because this is not an application. This is not a decision on the main claim about what the value of that building is and whether it is indeed... Uh, unjust enrichment I'm sure it is uh, and will be seen that way and there'll have to be compensation for the building but I think what Sebek and Agate is trying to do is figure out well what would have been a reasonable rent over the course of those 10 years and reduce the amount owing uh, by that reasonable amount of rent and what they're trying to do is get some records from Mi'kmaq Family and Children's Services from two other buildings they have one in Bear River and one in Eskasoni and see all right what are you paying for rent there and what are the arrangements well, uh, Mi'kmaq Family and Children's Services says those records are not relevant. And the court agreed. 
they are, first of all, those other two leases, there are leases and there is rent being paid in the other locations, but those were drafted after this building was built, after Mi'kmaq Family and Children's Services started occupying the building rent-free without a lease, and so they would have had no effect on any of the discussions throughout the relevant time frame. So in other words, these documents are not relevant. And uh, so Mi'kmaq Family and Children's Services was successful in the application. Court of Appeal agreed with that. They uh, did not agree with the applicant. Uh, uh, represented by uh, Mary Rolfe from Pink Larkin. And it was Dennis James and Anne-Marie Manley from Patterson Law in uh, Truro and Halifax for Mi'kmaq Family and Children's Services. So interesting case there. All right, so uh, those were the relevant cases and issues that I thought would be uh, bring to your attention this week. Hope everybody enjoyed that. Again, uh, just invite you to join us all on Tuesday evening at 9.15 p.m. There'll be uh, a link in the YouTube uh, channel to check in. You can uh, even get it so that you're notified in advance if you need a reminder uh, for that. So look forward to all that and discussing the book that's here. And until then, I want to uh, thank everybody for watching. Thank everybody for listening and we'll see you next time.